moment to dismiss our kids to the back. And I'll take a moment to say it's good to be back. It was uh, strange being away from all of you for so long, but uh, we had a great time. And uh, oh, I like driving. <laughs> Nobody bothers you when you drive. <laughs> they don't want a tragic mistake, so they leave you alone. I would have showed you pictures today, but uh, the only pictures they got of me is from my best side, and you didn't want to see that. So, uh, no, I'll tell you, um, the best part about the trip, other than being with my family for so long, um, it was a it was a history refresher for me. It's been a long time since I had American history. Nobody gets to speculate as to how long. Um, and it just reminded me again uh, how fortunate uh, I am that God had me born in this place and the great opportunity that exists and uh, the great courage that it takes to live in a country like this. Because at any moment, uh, things can change. And, um, and it's up to us as a people uh, to make sure that, that those changes are really under God, like we say so often. And uh, when, you, when you visit these places and you realize uh, just how fragile it was that it came about and how fragile it still remains, but how wonderful it is. Um, so it was good for me for that. Now, it has been said that when a preacher comes back from a two-week vacation that he has a sermon that he has no control over at all. He plans to speak for 20 or 25 minutes, but it always just mushrooms into this, um, like having two pieces of bubble gum in your mouth. You know, just too much. But I promise you that's not going to happen today. Uh, if you pay close attention, if I begin to feel like you're not paying close attention, we'll stop and start over again. So, <laughs> I think I want to try that every week and see what happens. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 8, uh, still in Mark, and still uh, working through the early portions of this, but we're reaching a turning point in Mark's gospel because by now we should have reached a turning point in what we understand to be uh, the Son of Man and what He has come to do. This Jesus that we gather each week, we, we take time out of our life to be together to worship Him and to say to one another that we're living our life according to His will and that our lives are an image of His in the world. That's what we do here every week. That's the community that we share together. We, we come from all different walks of life and all different places, but we gather up here today, and that's why we are here. It's a unique, precious treasure that God has given us to unite our lives together with a purpose directed and shaped by His Son. And as we get to know Him more, and as we examine His life more, and as that becomes more meaningful to us, the more effective we are as good children and good brothers to Him and sisters to Him. And we're at that place in Mark where He begins to shift, and we have to take uh, uh, 
a, a little bolder stance as to who Jesus is. He's more than just a holy man that is gum about doing good. There's more to him. And his love for us is so deep and so precious that he wants to be sure that there's nothing in the way of us understanding that and experiencing that. And so that's where we are today. Um, I'm going to begin in verse 11. I'll refer back to the beginning of the chapter, but we're going to begin reading at verse 11. It says here, So the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. And sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then he left them, got back in the boat, and went to the other side. I want you to get this geographically or spatially in your head. He's with the, the Gentile people now, uh, non-Jewish people. Some may have been believers, most not. And he's going back now to the side of the lake where... Uh, to the, to the Galilean side, side of the lake where there are more believers. Uh, believers in God, not necessarily in Jesus, of course. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. And they, he, Then he gave them strict orders. I want you to hear that. Strict, he's given them strict orders. Now, when you're in the military and you receive a strict order, that order's got to be carried out no matter what. This is an order that has to be obeyed and it has to be completed fully. Watch out, he says. This is part of the order. Beware of the leaven among the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, so this is the order he's telling them. Beware. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread <laughs> okay so Jesus has given them a strict order and their mind is still somewhere else aware of this he said to them why are you discussing the fact that we have no bread can you hear a bit of frustration in, in this for him they leave they leave with one loaf of bread there's 13 of them and they're all worried about not having enough bread and he's telling them you've got to be aware of the kind of thinking that goes on in the minds of the Pharisees and, the, and, and Herod. Do you not understand or comprehend? This is the fourth time now. He said, are you so dull? Have, or do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you remember... When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Can't you see me? That's what he's saying here. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and, and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought, out, uh, brought him out of the village. 
spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Means nobody needs to know about this. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. And he said, But you, he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them not to tell or to tell no one about him. Then he began to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He spoke openly about this. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking about God's concerns, but human concerns. And we're going to stop there for a moment. That's a lot of Scripture. That's got Jesus on one side of the lake and then another side of the lake. And there's a lot going on here. But there's one thing very important going on that leads us to the most important thing. And that's where I want us to get to today. Okay? This whole passage starts out really in verse 80. In uh, chapter, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 8, he's feeding the 4,000. And we won't go back and recount that whole thing. But almost exactly what happens with the 5,000 uh, amongst the Galileans, Jesus does with 4,000 in the Gentile part of the world. And these two stories together tell us that Jesus is opening up his life to much more than what the Pharisees and the scribes and even Herod thought that he was about. His life, he is feeding, literally feeding everyone. His life is an open book to come to and to be satisfied. And this was an unheard of idea especially for the Messiah of Israel. The Messiah was for them. And through that, the Messiah was going to come. He was going to come in figuratively on his white horse and all his power, and he was going to set everything right in the world, and the throne of David would be elevated and lifted up, and the people of Israel would have respect again. And that was the idea of a Messiah. And so Jesus is doing all these things, and finally the Pharisees get enough. They came to him and, and to argue with him and also to test him. And the way that they were arguing with him was, how in the world can you be doing all these things when, uh, you know, are you the one? Certainly you must not be the one. You're hanging out with the Gentiles, and you're doing things. You're performing miracles for them, and they're just a bunch of sinners, and we're the people of Israel. Um, so let's, let's have a sign here to prove who you are. And Jesus says, why does this generation need a sign? 
of all the generations that have come before, they may have needed a sign about the Messiah. But why in the world would this generation need a sign about the Messiah when the kingdom of heaven is near, right here? Right here. So he says, I'm not giving you a sign. But there's another reason why he's not going to give a sign. Who created the sign? A bunch of men were creating a sign. They were doing just like Satan did way back in the wilderness when this whole thing started. And he said, look, hey, if, if, if you're who you say you are, if you want to show everybody who you say you are, just climb up on the pinnacle of the temple, go and jump off, angels will come and rescue you, and everybody will know who you are. Simple sign. And that's what these guys were doing. Just give us a sign. Just give us some way to prove who you are. And then, hey, we're right behind you. We'll get all behind you. And Jesus says, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. This isn't some parlor trick that I've come out of glory to, to do. He's not saying that to them. Because there's a message much more important here that we've got to get to if we're going to call him Messiah. And I want us to get there. I want us to get there together. So he says this, and then he gets on a boat. Back across the lake he goes, Right? Okay, and on the way, they don't have bread. They're not thinking. They got one loaf of bread for, for 12, 13 people. And, uh, you know, this is a problem. It's 17 miles across the lake. They may get hungry. And Jesus was hungry for 40 days. It's not a big deal to him, naturally. But these guys are not going to be able to make 17 miles across the lake without some bread. And so they start talking about it. We've got we to get some bread. Well, what are we going to do? We're going to have to figure out how to ration this one loaf of bread. or you know. And then they begin to argue with each other. Well, it must have been your fault we didn't get the bread. Oh, no, it was your fault you didn't get the bread. And here's this conversation going. And Jesus hears all of this, and he says, I've got something you've got to hear if you're ever going to know who I am. You can't be looking for signs about who I am. There's no sign that's going to explain who I am. There's no thinking that's going to say you've got to prove yourself in some sort of way. Why does he include Herod in this warning? Because Herod was all fascinated by, by John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist, to Herod, was some kind of magic mumbo-jumbo guy. And he wanted to know more about Herod. I mean, he wanted to know more about John. So, he, so it was kind of, a, kind of a fascination thing like, like watching a movie you can't take your eyes off of. That's kind of how Herod was. He was just waiting for the next thing to happen with John because it was, it was entertaining and fascinating to him. And Jesus is saying, beware of that kind of thinking. Beware of those who are looking for a sign when the Messiah comes. Beware of those who are just having this, this fanciful um, fascination with the idea of God coming and rescuing his people. You've got to be aware of that. It's a limiting factor in your life, and you're never going to be able to see who I am, so get that out of your head. And the whole time he's telling them this, they're still talking about the doggone loaf of bread. And he says, are you still talking about the bread? I'm trying to make something crystal clear to you that is, that is this is life or death. He's saying to them, he says, don't you remember? I mean, bread is not a problem for me. Don't you remember what happened when I broke the loaves and fed the 5,000? Yeah, there was a lot of bread left. Bread is not the problem. 
In fact, even then you were seeing the bread and you weren't seeing me. Or just what I just did with the 4,000. You remember the bread? Yeah, there were seven baskets left over. Bread's not a problem for me. Open your eyes to the one to me. So he asked him, don't you still understand? I mean, are you having trouble here? And then Mark throws this great parable in the middle of this, the healing of this, of this blind guy. They get to Bethsaida. There he is. They want Jesus to touch him. He spits on him. <clears throat> and, and, and look at this. These, the disciples are blind. The Pharisees are blind. The scribes are blind. Everybody's blind to who Jesus is. And then Mark throws this great parable in there where you've got to let Jesus do some things to open your eyes. You've got to get really close and intimate to him. You've got to get close enough and allow him to even spit on you. He spits on his eyes, and he, and he, and he touches his eyes, and he says, you know, what, what can you see? He says, well, I see people, but they look like trees. So he touches him again, and then the next thing, the, he's able to see, Right? And Jesus says, okay, don't, don't even go into the village. Do you not, don't let anybody hear about what this is about, see. And in this, in this parable we see, if we'll just let Jesus open our eyes to who he is, he will, but it's a process. We may not see it all at the beginning, but we're going to see it at the end. There's a process going on. And then the very next thing that we see in this passage when they're walking along to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, which is north of where they had landed. And Jesus asked them, okay, who do, you, who do people say that I am? Now, of course, Jesus knows this answer, right? But there's a compare and contrast going on here that I want you to get. Who do, you, who do people say that I am? Well, people say that you are John the Baptist or like John the Baptist or you are Elijah or you are some other prophet. People are saying that from our own limited vantage point, you're a lot like this. Right? That's what they're saying. From, from, from their limited vantage point, you seem to be a lot like this. And Jesus looks him square in the eye and says, but what about you? What's your vantage point? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, with all sincerity, because Matthew tells us how Peter came upon this. God showed it to him. With all sincerity, Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. That word only meant one thing for a Hebrew of any stripe. And that was, you are the one that God has placed his hand upon. And has provided his will, his authority, his power to do whatever he wants you to do. You are the one. Of course, Peter knows what that means. This is the guy that's going to get on the white horse. And this is a guy that's going to ride into to Rome and destroy Rome. And the nation of Israel is going to be great again. And the throne of David is going to be pronounced again. And everything's going to be the way that it should have been all these years. It's going to be that way. That's what he's thinking. 
He, he is certain of who Jesus is. But he's still like the Pharisees. There's a vantage point where he must say, you're the Messiah because you fit the way that I want you to be the Messiah. Now let me stop there for a minute. Are you doing that today? Have you got a game plan figured out for Jesus in your life and you're, and you're going to make sure that he fits it so that you can say, yeah, that's Jesus because he fits the way that I want him to be in my life. That's got to be Jesus. That's got to be the Messiah. He's doing it. It's all the way that I want it to be. Everything said about him matches up perfectly with what I believe and what I want it to believe. The blessings that I've received is because I believe that he's the, the one that provides blessings. So I'm receiving blessings. And I could go on and on and on with the way that we try to develop these vantage points of understanding who Jesus is so that he fits our idea of Savior for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm a forgiving child of God. Well, that's got to mean more than that. How can I say that? Well, when we get to the next part of this, Then he began to teach them. Now, when teaching occurs, what happens to you when teaching occurs? There's an exchange, right? <laughs> yeah, teaching occurs when somebody says something and you hope somebody's learning at the other end. Jesus begins to teach, and we need to learn. He began to teach them that, my translation says, it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer. Yours may say that, it, that the Son of Man must suffer. The necessary to and the must translates the same word. Must suffer many things. Must be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. Must be killed and must rise after three days. That's the way the sentence is constructed. All four of those things must happen. Just as he said at the, up here when he's given the order, he's saying the same kind of language. As I told you that you must be aware of what is coming out of the mouths of the Pharisees and Herod, these things must happen. And so now we've got to look closer at Jesus. Especially Peter and the rest. Because this is not the Messiah that they were planning on. But Peter knows he hasn't made a mistake. God revealed it to him, and he's as sure as he's sure about anything in the world. And for the first time since we began in this book, Peter is beginning to face who Jesus really is. Jesus is not the one that's going to come in on a white horse with all power to condemn everything, to wipe everything out and to rise up a few. Jesus has come to suffer. What? A Messiah that suffers? A king that suffers? Why must he suffer? It says that he must suffer. Why must he suffer? Well, when one, someone says that he's coming to do something, 
to restore you, don't you want to be sure that they're going to go all the way, especially if it's God? And that's exactly what this is about. There's a way in which Jesus could come with all power and wipe out sin and wipe us out with it. That's what he would have done. But he comes to say this, I must suffer, and he could have easily said, for your sin. I must suffer for it. You know what that says about God? A God that will leave everything that is holy, everything that is pure, everything that is God, and come to say, I'm going to place myself under suffering, the suffering that you caused. I'm going to place myself under that suffering for you because of my love for you. If God had wanted to just wipe out evil and sin and death in the world, he could have just done it and wiped us out with it. But because of his love for us, he had to come and suffer in our stead. Well, why? Why couldn't he just have done it some other way? Because the suffering and the sin that exists is something that you and I brought into the world. How else is it going to be dealt with and be dealt with fully, justly, unless God deals with it? And if he's not willing to suffer in order to deal with it, then why pay attention to him anyway? There's a price that has to be paid in this. We've offended God with our sin, and there has to be a price to pay. Instead of us paying... And suffering, God says, I'm going to come and suffer. I'm going to do it. And it's because of my love for you. You know what else happens here? When this love come, becomes a reality for us? He's able to offer us forgiveness. Out of love comes forgiveness. We've talked about this before. But when someone is forgiven, a price has to be paid. When you are asking for or offering forgiveness, that means a wrong has been done in some sort of way. You don't just offer forgiveness without a wrong having happened. Something terrible has happened and someone must be forgiven. Well, our sin offends God and so he has to find a way doesn't have to but love requires that he do find a way to offer forgiveness to us for that offense for that sin and so out of his great love for us he comes to suffer and out of that suffering he is able to pay the price for us so that he can offer forgiveness to us that's why he must suffer. He must be rejected. The rejection comes only because there's these preconceived ideas of who Jesus is going to be in, in life. The chief priests, the scribes, 
the temple leaders, they all had this preconceived idea of who the Messiah was going to be. They naturally were going to have to reject him, even to the point of wanting him dead. And then he goes on to say, and he must be killed. There had to be a shedding of blood. Because in the shedding of blood, things are made right. Life for life. But then he said, but he also must rise after three days. After three days, everything is going to be set right. And all of this is going to be set right because of his great and wonderful love for you. And for me. And for everyone who has ever believed. But poor old Peter, he didn't quite get it. And so he takes Jesus away from the crowd. It says Jesus is speaking openly about this now. Remember all the times in Mark where Jesus would do something? And he would say, don't tell anybody about it. And yet they'd all go tell. Because he was afraid of the very thing that was, that was happening here. They're just going to see me for the things that I do. But when he comes down to saying why he's really come and who the Messiah really is, Mark says he's talking openly about it. He wants everybody to understand who he is and why he's come and what's going to happen and what's going to be the result. And he's talking openly about it. And then that's when Peter grabs him and takes him away and says, you can't talk like that. And Jesus says to him in front of everybody, stop it, Satan. You're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like God. You're concerned about the things of a man and you're not concerned about the things of God. And I've come only for the ways and things of God. And you've got to see me for who I am. You've got to. Forget all the stuff. You've got to see me for who I am. And that's the same question that we have today. When, when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And those of you in this room today that say, you are Messiah. What does that mean for you? Is he Messiah because he's done something for you? Or is he Messiah because he has offered his love unconditionally to you? Are you looking for the goods at the end of this? Are you just as satisfied with saying, He's my Messiah because God has shown His complete and unadulterated love for me, and that's all I want? Or do you have your test out there? You got the multiple choice that needs to be checked off to make sure that that's the one that you want. There is no test, there is no proof, there is no sign, there's only Christ. And his love for you. That's it. And when you embrace that. Listen. When you embrace that. You're born again. Born again. Out of that this process begins. You won't get it all at once. But you'll get it. And you know why? Jesus never stops he never stops with you he never stops with you he keeps asking you hey where are you man I'm, I'm struggling with this part of my life well let's do a little more work we got to get it right and he continues that way and he continues that way because of why why does he do it he loves you you haven't done anything 
He just loves you, and you've embraced it. He just loves you. But when we start saying to him, well, you've got you to gotta be like this, Jesus. This has got to be true about you, Jesus. This, all this, all, this has all got to line up. You're going to miss him. You're just flat going to miss him. You'll be frustrated and aggravated your whole life trying to live with Jesus because you're not seeing him for who he is. You're missing him. Now, what does that mean for you? It means, what that means is, is that you begin to love like he loves. Ouch. You mean, when he loved me, he suffered for me. Yeah, it means when you love others, you're going to suffer too. You're going to suffer. You're going to suffer to show the love of Jesus to others. It's hard. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to realize I've got to go under another person's pain and sorrow. I've got to go under the weight of that in order to show them the weight of the glory of Jesus. But it's the only way. I've got to do it. It's, all, it's the only option I have. If I really love them, I'm willing to do that. If I don't really love them, then just go uh, whistle by the graveyard because that's where most of them are going to wind up. It's not a pretty tune. You've got to love them. Do you know that community in a church where it starts? It doesn't start with a meeting at 1045 on Sunday morning. It doesn't start with all the things that we might get together and do in ministry and service and all, all, all that's all good. It starts with the way that we love each other. In fact, most times in the church, especially our size, people come together to do stuff, but the reason why they're there is because they want to be with the people they love. That's the basis of it. That's the genesis of everything for us. And we have it because Jesus said, I'll go suffer for them. I will take the suffering. I will take the pain. I will take the sorrow. I'll do it because I love them so much. God, we could do this the easy way. Father, I could just stay up here in heaven on my throne with you and just go bloop. No more nothing. But he said, no, I'm going to go to them. I'm going to experience what they experience. They're going to know that I love them. They're going to know that you love them. And there's going to be a day. And there is a day coming. There is a day coming when all that he has set forth in his, in his suffering for us and all the suffering that we've had to endure in our lives where he's been right there with us, all of that is going to come to a close. And everything that evil and sin has done, God is going to undo in a new heaven and a new earth where you and I will all be there together with him. And we will truly appreciate the suffering of the Lamb. Today I'm asking you to free yourself of all the things that you've determined Jesus must be in order for you to know who he is. 
and I want you to know him because of his love for you and all that that means. For those of you that are here today and you've never approached this Jesus this way, in fact, you've kind of had your questions about the whole idea of faith and belief and trust and surrender and church. Maybe you've had all of that and you're saying, I don't really want to have a lot to do with that. All that you have to want to embrace right now, today, is the love that Jesus has for you. And from that moment on, He will reveal everything you need to know about your salvation, about your life, about who He is, about your place in the world. Everything will come. But you have to see Him for who He is. So let's bow our heads together. And the worship team is going to come. And <laughs> As is our custom, this is a time where you get to, to make any decisions and meditate, pray about what God is doing in your life right now. Look, you may have come here today, and nothing that has happened in this service has impacted you at all but God has brought you to a place with Him today maybe for this very moment where you get to spend just some time and that's what this space is about this time space is for you and Him and to deal with all that is going through your heart and mind right now <clears throat> you may be here and you're realizing that your whole understanding of Jesus has been for what it means to you and not for who he is. And what I've been trying to say to you today is there's a whole new world with him to open up if you can see him for who he is. He suffered and died because he loves you deeply. And because he suffered and died, he can forgive you of everything that you've ever done against him. And the life on the other side of those two things, the realization and execution of those two things, the life on the other side of that is, is boundless. And it's that boundless life in him that he's given so much. <clears throat> 